so rude. Uh, welcome to the Republic of Middle-Aged Men, uh, finally, for this week. Uh, I'm your host, Tim, and I am joined, as usual, by Lachlan. Howdy. And Ruben. G'day. So, deja vu. Um, we already did this two nights ago, and I stuffed <laughs> up the audio recording as per our 15-second clip from a couple of days ago. So, uh, do you guys feel well-prepared for tonight? <laughs> oh, mate, this, this is just a tribute. <laughs> you remember that old uh, Tenacious D song? This is, sure this is just a tribute to the greatest song ever told. Well, this is this is just a tribute to the greatest podcast episode ever recorded. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but you are one hundred percent correct. It was the greatest <laughs> podcast ever recorded. It <laughs> was then not recorded. <laughs> uh, so Father's Day uh, was on Sunday. Uh, how did you go, Ruben? Oh yeah, good. I um, I got a bunch of wine, and um, we sort of celebrated the week before because my wife was at work. Um, but that's what I'm drinking tonight. I've got a, a Margaret River Cabernet Merlot, which Ooh. is not what I was drinking on Sunday. That one's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how about you, Lachlan? Yeah, I had an awesome Father's Day. Uh, got a sleep in, which never happens, uh, and pretty much spent the day eating. So, uh, kicked off with a bacon egg roll and a coffee. Hadn't had one of those bacon egg roll anyway for months. Mm. Um, my wife had prepared like a nice sort of platter of like antipasto and, uh, you know, cheeses and all that sort of thing for lunch. And then, uh, we had like a Japanese banquet for dinner. So like I literally did nothing but eat all day, which was spectacular. <laughs> Glorious. <laughs> Um, what did I do? I got I I did get a little sleep in. I got waffles with ice cream for breakfast, which was really yeah. good. And we had my favourite lunch, which is um, a platter. So we'll do like cooked chorizo with goat's cheese on top and heated up olives cooked in the chorizo fat, as well as some chili and you know different sliced meats. Like so there's some wagyu that you can get. Um, it's like a beautiful thin piece of smoked wagyu mm, so good so yeah that was really good um obviously i got my lego spaceship a few weeks ago which is finished um, so yeah yeah it's pretty good um ruben you said what you were drinking what, what are you drinking tonight lachlan yeah uh, actually funny enough it's a um gin and tonic surprise surprise um it, it's actually what i got for father's day as well um it's my, from my uh, mother-in-law and it was uh it sort of had, I think, uh, was it uh, notes of Darjeeling tea and citrus or something, something. But uh, yeah, it's quite pleasant. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> Darjeeling tea. That's it. Well, on Sunday night, I had conformed and tried gin. Uh, I tried gin tonic on the Saturday and I didn't rate the tonic, so I went for lemonade and that was okay. <laughs> uh, but for tonight, I'm just going to have whiskey out of my hip flask because why not? Nice. But why not? <laughs> Um, what that contains is a Japanese whiskey of course um, but I don't recall which one <laughs> but it's good so who cares hey, how do you get the ice through the podcast it? buddy <laughs> it's not full um, and it certainly won't be empty so <laughs> that's okay it is a school night after all it is indeed yep. alright well let's um, do a quick recap of where we're up to 
last episode, and then we can jump into where we're up to now. Yeah, I think last time we got through music, essentially, uh, and literature, and we kind of got to the tail end of that, and uh, then it got a little bit weird towards the end, before the conclusion. The conclusion was essentially that uh, the object of education is to teach us to love what is beautiful, but immediately mm. prior to that, there was um, some things about uh, different types of, let's say, love of different members of society. Um, <laughs> I don't quite know how to put that, but uh, Lachlan did a good job of uh, summing that up because he did a bit of extra research. Essentially, we ran into this part of the book where my translation diverged pretty significantly from theirs. Um, but even, I think even you boys, when you read that section, um, found it sort of just hard to, it was just a bit odd. Um, yeah. And then um, when I read read mine, it sort of started to come become a little bit clear that there was something else going on there. And then uh, Lachlan did the did us the honour of the background research to make it all sense, make make yeah. sense. So I reckon we'll hand over to you, Lachlan. You can give your <laughs> well researched yeah. explanation. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, we might just. Um, I, I think uh, there's just an excerpt. We might just read it from there, so you know what we're sort of talking about. Oh, do you, want me to do oh, that you read your you excerpt the... and then I'll read yeah. the, my translation yeah. so they can hear the difference. Yeah, you, you go, Tim. And... Okay. Uh, right. So I'll, I'll start from here. When a beautiful soul harmonizes with a beautiful form and the two are cast in one mold, that will be the fairest of sights to him who has an eye to see it. The fairest indeed. And the fairest is also the loveliest. That may be assumed. And the man who has the spirit of harmony will be most in love with the loveliest, but he will not love him who is of an inharmonious soul. That is true, he replied, if the deficiency be in his soul. But if there be any merely bodily def uh, defect in another, he will be patient of it and will love all the same. I perceive, I said, that you have or have had experiences of this sort, and I agree. But let me ask you another question. Has excess of pleasure any affinity to temperance? All right, so hold up there. That's basically where it's a lot different in my my um, interpret, in, in my version. Because mm -hmm. where you just said that, mine says, um, not if it's a defect in one's character, he replied. If it's a physical defect, he will not let it be a bar to his affection. Then he goes on to say, I know, I said, You've got or once had a boyfriend like that, and I agree with you, but tell me, does excessive pleasure go with self-control and moderation? So they kind of get to the same point, but the, where it sort of diverges in mind, it actually articulates that that particular attraction was to a boyfriend. Um, and as in my, my understanding of that is there's actually not, not a boyfriend as in a boy, like, a, man, like a, a male friend, but like a boyfriend as in a friend who is a young boy. Um, yeah. So that's sort of what we're kind of getting at, where, where it differs and where it becomes apparent that there's a different cultural thing going on with this particular with this particular section. Um, I, yeah. I found it kind of amusing too because they're, they're basically saying somebody who has a beautiful mind and a beautiful body is the most beautiful thing, and Socrates is like, and then then I think I think it was Glaucon's like, oh yeah, but you know, an imperfect body is not so important and Socrates is like oh yeah that's right I remember that kid that you were you were attracted <laughs> to so, yeah. so I don't know what I don't know whether he was like had a gimpy arm or one leg or something like that but. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it does seem to be throwing a little bit of shade. Um, <laughs> there's there's um, one a little bit sort of further on, which I'll just read there too, because it's just got uh, some relevance to what we'll talk about. <clears throat> um, th- this is kind of like the summary of where they get to. So um, then I suppose that in the city which we are founding, you would make a law to the effect that a friend should use no other familiarity to his love than a father would use to his son, and then only for a noble purpose. And he must first have the other's consent, and this rule is to limit him in all his intercourse. And he is never to be seen going further, or if he exceeds, he is deemed guilty of coarseness and bad taste. I agree, he said. So, like, from that... um, I was not quite sure what they were getting on about, which is why I sort of delved in and did a little bit of research from this point because, you know, it's uh, we just quite weren't quite sure what the context was. <clears throat> so um, when I went and sort of dug into it, uh, basically the scenario was is that in these times in ancient Greece, it would seem a noble man, uh, I'm not quite sure quite what the context is, but they would basically court a young man who um, was not yet deemed to be a citizen. So they were definitely like really like a, a preteen by the sound of it. Um, and I don't know, kind of, it sounds like they're kind of like taking them under a wing from perhaps, uh, um, I don't know, some sort of social standing or something like that. But there was definitely a sexual element to it though as well. Uh, and when they're talking there, and oh, sorry, we were supposed to put the, uh, parental warning on at this point in time, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. which we did on Sunday and we just forgot to do that. But right now I, you can, I, I can put that, I'll put that in post, post-production. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put that in at the start. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in that, uh, paragraph I was just reading before, and you know, they're talking about to uh, limit him in all his intercourse. Uh, they've actually been quite specific here because there's a thing where, um, uh, basically they were sort of saying that there was like a intercourse but with no penetration was kind of what they were talking about as uh sorry i'll get graphic here for a second but basically um two blokes facing each other and uh, uh their uh, penis between the thighs or something like that uh, yeah, that seems to be what they're talking about there um from some other sort of historical texts that i went and um uh, understood and when they talk about not going on further um, there's this thing um, around, uh, we should point out, this is not about uh, homosexuality and heterosexuality because that was not a thing in Greece. It's about masculinity and femininity. And um, basically, it's not considered odd um, back in ancient Greece because they um, attributed masculinity so long as you were, so to speak, the, uh, the giver rather than the receiver. And the receiver, because they're a young man who's not yet deemed to be a citizen, it's okay for them to be submissive in that role. But it's not right in their eyes once they become a man because then they become a citizen and they would be submissive at that point in time. And that's why they're saying that that would be coarse and in bad taste uh, if they were doing that to a uh, to a fellow man. Yeah. So do you think that's why they went for the um, front on front? Let the beams cross model because they're the taker. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's I, I still don't quite uh, look. It, it sounds like back in ancient Rome, anyway. There's a there's an appreciation for um, uh, I suppose the uh, attractiveness, whether they were male or female, right? Um, but um, I can't say particularly what that 
sort of thing was. I mean, look, obviously people uh, hooked up at much um, much younger ages um, back in those times, but you know, obviously yeah, to right. our modern uh, sensibilities, it it, uh, um, it doesn't align. But um, anyway, look, we understand that it's two and a half thousand years ago, so um, that's just what the situation was back then. So yeah, there we go. I, look, yeah, so for those listening or watching, like, we didn't want to brush over this because we want to be intellectually honest. We certainly don't endorse it, um, but we had to, you know, call it out. And, and partly because, like, when you read the translation that Lachlan and I have, it, it's actually so vague that you kind of don't really know what they're talking about. And I think yep. that's just people being courteous or, you know, trying to translate it as gracefully as possible to not be offensive. Um but yeah. yeah, and and look, uh, to be honest, when I read through it the first time, like I, I had put a question mark next to it just because I was just like, what are they getting at here? And then, yeah, Ruben's version of the text was much more straightforward in its translation, I think. And we're like, oh, okay, that's why I want to dig into it and understand it because it, it didn't fit in with what I understood at that point in time. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. covered. Yes. So I think from there they move on to because they've done, they've done literature and music and then they move on to physical education, um, which is one of the shorter sections. But it also has a fair bit of depth in it too. Hmm. Um, so I think they start out by saying, um, "Well, what kind of physical training should a soldier have?" And they say, "Well, wouldn't we want an athlete?" And Socrates is like, "Well, not exactly because athletes is a very spe- specialized type of training." Um, and he said, haven't you noticed that, well, in my translation is the athlete, have you noticed that, uh, athletes in training are sleepy creatures and his health is delicately balanced. Um, you know, the implication being that they've got, they're very regimented, um, they're training for one very specific thing, and that's probably not going to be helpful for, um, soldiers. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, from a really practical sense. You know, if you're marching soldiers all over the uh, the country to uh, do war with your neighbours or whatever it's going to be, you know, um, they've got to be a bit more flexible. And I think he's just getting at that fact that, um, you know, they may have to operate on less sleep. They may have to operate on different water and uh, different foods or what have you. So uh, they can't be on this. Yeah, that's of- right. They they tie it in with uh, the type of food they eat. It's, it's really appropriate for the Guardians to be having fancy food and things like that because... Uh, because um, when it comes down to it and they're out in the field, there's, you know, the only thing they're going to be able to do is eat simple food. So they should be used to that so that when they end up in the, in the, in the field, it's not a disadvantage. It seems yeah, pretty reasonable. Yeah, and he like, compared that to uh, the stories of Homer, and I think they're talking about uh, only eating roast meats or something like that. And uh, <laughs> something you don't need pots and pans for, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which makes loads of sense just from a practical perspective. Um, that, yeah, but I think that the makes thing me talk- think of Lord of the Rings, by the way. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Because you know the hobbits when they first leave the Shire, they take all their they pots are they're and carrying and pots and pans. And, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they lose them at some stage. I think it's uh, like Sam ends up whacking goblins with his pans or something when they're in the mountain warrior. <laughs> After that, I think no. Actually, I think he hangs on them all the way through to when they see the elephants, but the others lose their stuff. Yeah, yeah. Random way. There you go. It was a pretty amusing section because they go on. They're talking about food, and then they go on to say, you know, what Athenian confectionery wouldn't be appropriate. But then for some reason, they just threw in um, uh, they shouldn't have Corinthian girlfriends. Yeah. (laughs) There was another section where I was like, 
to go with these Corinthian girls, hey? Um, but Lachlan was saying he looked it up and it was basically a meant prostitute. <laughs> yeah, I said, when you, uh, Corinthia was apparently, yeah, the, the, the sort of uh, the city where uh, um, brothels were invented by the sound of it. So, Aren't they uh, also <laughs> known for like really good glasswork? Oh yeah, well, no, it was like uh, Corinthian Doors was the thing, wasn't it? I don't know. Maybe oh, I'm getting... I don't know. That's, that's a company, we... actually. That's so Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's... I'm pretty sure they sell doors at Bunnings. <laughs> not, not just for brothels, though. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, sorry, we have uh, no uh, no slander against the Corinthian Doors company. Um, yeah, correct. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's just really random that they kind of dropped that in, um, and it was uh, right in the middle of all this sort of food talk. But it, yeah, but it was also it seemed kind of funny that they sort of said that they, um, yeah, shouldn't um, hook up with prostitutes when they were just talking about how it's quite all right to uh, find a young man in the village and um, <laughs> you know uh, seduce him to your uh, to your will or something. So anyway, yeah. Uh, Interesting times. Um, Different times, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think basically he was sort of saying um, with, with what happens with, uh, with these guys as far as diet goes, um, that it should be simple um, and it should be sort of uh, wholesome. Um, so like the, uh, where they're talking about the music and all that sort of stuff, the simplicity was best is kind of what they, they sort of landed on. And so they're trying to do the same, the same yeah. sort of thing. Just coming um, back to the Corinth girl thing, I still, mm. my theory is in the middle of their conversation, a Corinthian girl has walked in to the room and distracted the guy that Socrates is talking to. <laughs> and he's like, I mean, certainly shouldn't have that. No. <laughs> Bring your attention back here. Because <laughs> why, they're not even talking about, they're talking about a, a, a fake place. Why would they specifically name Corinthian girls? Like, it's yeah. so random. It had to be something weird like that. Like some chick walked in, distracted him and Socrates has cracked it because he's like, not even listening to me. In fairness, I mean, maybe maybe it was just a commonly sort of held thing that soldiers, you know, when they're campaigning, would go looking for Corinthian girls, which makes sense, right? Because that's kind of a staple for armies through the sands of time, right? Um, so that could well be maybe why they sort of raised that. And, you know, going back to some of their discussion that they actually had in that last chapter about, um, you know, passion versus love, and all of that sort of thing they were sort of saying that um, you know but passion was what was it the matter or something like that um i'm trying to see where that sort of a particular passage was but in any case um i think they were sort of saying that there's a difference between you know love versus um just infatuation or lust if you know what i mean and so yeah. you're saying well that it can only be lust if it's a corinthian girl rather than love right so uh, <laughs> that ties it in. Yeah, that works. Yeah. So I could I could kind of see that maybe. That's funny. Um, they kind of lead on from all of that to talking. It sort of rolls on to health and uh, physicians or doctors and uh, solicitors was kind of the uh, the next thing they they kind yeah. of yeah yeah he kind about. of zooms out and starts talking about society more generally. Um, mm. Yeah, and he says. And the prevalence of indiscipline and disease. Oh. Ruben's had a lag out Lincoln there. begins to give them... Uh, yeah, then he goes to say the um, the lawyers and the medics, or the, the lawyers and the doctors, give themselves airs. 
So he kind of uh, sees the wanna, need for lawyers and doctors. Do you want to do you yes, want to read that bit again? Because you laid out really bad. Oh sure sure. <laughs> yeah. um, so he goes, and the prevalence of indi- indiscipline and disease in the community leads to does it not the opening of law courts and surgeries in large numbers, and law and medicine begin to give themselves airs, especially when they are taken with great seriousness from even by free men. Um, so he, I, I thought that was interesting because he's roughly saying if you need a lot of doctors and you need a lot of lawyers, then your society is is indisciplined and sick. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think he's um, you know certainly got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, and I did a little bit of research on some of this stuff as well. And apparently he had some arguments. I think it was, um, there's been some other sort of instances in, in uh, Plato's or Socrates' sort of, maybe it was Socrates, I think, rather than Plato, um, who had sort of pointed out that maybe they're being, uh, doctors being held in too high an esteem and that, uh, um, you know, maybe it should be, uh, uh, people like himself who should be held in a, a you know a little bit more <laughs> higher, higher statue. So I, I think it was kind of a bit of a battle of uh, of who is more important. Um, yeah, yeah, so and I think also I think contextually too, this is sort of once again this is through Plato's lens. Um, but yeah. a lot of the people back at that time were seen as sophists or people that just cared about influence and uh, you know what you could get away with rather than um, the truth um mm. so i can only assume that uh when socrates is having a go at doctors and, and and lawyers at that point he's essentially referring to those sophistic type um personalities mm. yep, yeah for sure yeah I, I think like he um he certainly has a pretty strong crack at the uh at, at the lawyers and what have you and he's basically saying that anybody who takes pride in finding loopholes in the law to weasel out of convictions uh, as a professional litigant is the most disgraceful thing um, yeah. is, is the words he, he used. So he's got a, a pretty low view there. Um, That's but yeah, cool. look, they, they do sort of like get back onto, the, the, I think the diet sort of side of things to sort of say, well, <clears throat> you know, if you've um, we've got a society who's eating well and that sort of thing, you just won't need, um, you know, all of those doctors and what have you. And uh, they sort of, do roll this into a bit of discussion around more sort of chronic illness versus sort of uh, injury. And I think it's where it starts to get a little interesting. Um, yeah, so he has a crack at um, people who don't look after themselves. So basically he's like, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't contribute in any way, you, you're sick your whole life and you need medicine to survive, um, you're a burden. <laughs> um, and we shouldn't be, you know, getting doctors to treat you. And I think he makes reference to some person who's a soldier or something like that, basically saying that, you know, if they get a wound, they treat it in the moment and then they have to push on. And then I think they move on to like the equivalent of tradies and, and talk about the same sort of thing um, where basically they can't afford to be on their backside for months at a time. So if they do get sick, they get some basic medicine or something to try and help them and then they just get on with life and either they get better or they die and that's their two options 
Yeah, no, and I think that the thing it? was when they said they die, it was kind of like, and the problem is solved. Was basically the. Uh, <laughs> the, the yeah, I think you've got to remember. You've got to remember the context that he's talking about this ideal society, and they've come to this conclusion that, you know, you got one job, and you do it, and you do it well, hmm. and essentially his position is if you're not doing your job well, you're not contributing to society. Uh, therefore, you become a burden. And you're not, you don't really play a role in my perfect society, which is sort of, I think, kind of his mindset. But I think there's um, cause, cause, it... because you can sort of look at it and, and it's very different from our approach these days to medicine. Hmm. Um, because he's basically saying, yeah, if, if someone's at a point where they can't fulfill their, their job or their duty, then you may as well let them die, um, which is almost sort of leaning more towards the eugenics end of the, the scale. Yeah, I think it's also too um, <clears throat> sort of reflective of what, you know, your occupation was at that time as well, because it's not like today where you could sort of potentially switch vocations, you know, four or five times in your lifetime. And I think it was that thing that, you know, you're sort of born into an apprenticeship almost, and you sort of do this particular job from the day you're born to the day you die almost. And uh, if you're deprived of your occupation, it's it's kind of part of your identity. I mean, yeah. you would be the butcher, you would be the fishmonger, or whatever it's going to be. And yeah, he refers to be... that kind of prolonged. He refers to that kind of prolonged illness. Um, yeah. He says that it can only lead to an unhappy prolongation of life and yeah. the production of children as unhealthy as themselves. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the bit where I'm just like, yeah, this is sounding very. Uh, you know, this is sounding uh, very 1930s Germany to me. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, I mean, well, um, to be uh... fair, Hitler did use um, Caesar's playbook quite a lot. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, Sparta even the was icon, a thing back iconography too, right? is very similar. Yeah, but Sparta was a thing back in this period of time, and they were they were very big on if mm. there's any defects, yeah, burn them all. But like even. Yeah. Um, that idea is so offensive to us. We're, we're watching a movie earlier this week, um, Greenland, with uh, Gerald Butler, and um, one of the things. Oh, that, uh, you! I saw the trailer for that and the write-up, and I'm just like, nah, I'm out. It's actually not <laughs> actually in... It's actually it's not that. Yeah, I'm yeah, gonna do a spoiler. So, spoiler alert if people care. Um, his kid has. And you should. Ah, beardies, and. Um, <laughs> They're all cleared to go there, but the, the government missed that the kid had diabetes. So when they get at the gate of the place to escape from the world ending, um, they get refused because the kid has diabetes. And I was like, oh, that's that's very Greek of them. <laughs> After reading this book. So, yeah, there you go. There's a, and I was like, it was so offensive. I'm like, how dare they? How dare they do that? <laughs> yeah, a bit different time then. I, look, there are... Uh, Interesting in the story, like they referred to uh, Asclepius as well, who's sort of the, the god of medicine in Greek mythology. Um, and it's getting onto Rubes' point there that he'd, he'd treat a wound um, but would not treat a lifelong ailment. So it was a bit of a quote there, which I think Rubes was referring to before. Say, so, uh, he did not want to lengthen our good for nothing lives or to have weak fathers begetting weaker sons. If a man was not able to live in the ordinary way, he had no business to cure him. For such a cure would be of no use whether to himself or the state. So they're they're, yeah. they're pretty clear in their sentiment mm. there. <laughs> I think I think part of it is 
their his mindset is that the state and we don't know because we haven't got through to the end of the book and we still haven't really even <laughs> figured out what justice is but so far I think basically his highest order um, value is the health of the state hmm. um, yeah. and obviously that's near, that from reading this you can see that's a very old idea but it's an idea that comes back and it's come back in the last 50 to 100 years hmm. it's a terrifying terrifying effect are you, yeah. are you referring to the nation of Winnie the Pooh Oh, I don't know. I wasn't so much thinking of of, uh, of China. I was thinking more Germany, and then and then and then communist countries, where the state is God. Yep, fair enough. Mm. Mm. All right. So, um, after all of that, sort of uh, Glaucon really uh, agrees with all of that, you know, above attitude. Um, but mind you, he does sort of flip it around a little bit and say, well, you know, at the end of the day. You know, if we've got a perfect state, you're still going to need doctors, right? You can't just write them all off. Um, yeah. And then Socrates sort of agrees that, yes, okay, we should have some good doctors and good judges um, in their state, but uh, but who is good? And they start to talk about the, uh, you know, how to select a judge for their perfect state as well, which is interesting. Well, I think they compare, yeah. first of all, right, um, you know uh, that there's two different methodologies because a doctor you would have a different selection to the to the judge, right? Mm. Yeah. So the doctor was more. You need someone who's been sick many times to be a doctor, or or at least exposed to all yeah. types of diseases. So then well, they, they said they that's not the case with judges. It. Yeah. So do you want to expand on that a bit, Ruben? I don't. I don't think I can. <laughs> okay, I think well, I'm, I'm more along the lines, I think, of like uh, they could be sick of body because that way they could be uh, healing themselves and basically practicing on doctoring themselves so they get better at their technique, right? As long as they're strong of like, of good sound mind because if you're, uh, you know, sick in mind as well as sick in body, then you, you're no good for anything. So uh, Yeah, that's right. Cause he basically characterizes it as a, a, a doctor is using his mind to yeah. control the body. Whereas a judge has to use his mind to control the mind. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So when they um, they start talking about yeah the the judges selection process was a was a bit different. So they're talking about you know um, you know the difference between their sort of backgrounds and where they would start. So uh, they more or less sort of land on the fact that a, a judge should be a a person who was born with a good soul and a, a good person by nature but who has been screwed over and taken advantage of for years and years and years and so has gained the experience of what it is to be sort of um you know had had wrong done to them so that they could identify that in people but could still see the good in people so that they basically sort of said it needs to be an old man who was who's always been good but has gotten this experience through life and is now sort of wise and can make these decisions. Yeah. Um, so he's basically not corrupted, but he understands the impact that the corruption has on those who aren't. Yeah, and he, so, he even says that people who are good in their youth appear naive, mm. Um, mm. which is interesting. I think there's some truth to that. Mm. Yep. I think so too. Um, 
And I think that, you know, on the flip side of that, he was sort of saying, you know, if they uh, have been someone who's done wrong so that they have experienced all the wrongness that can sort of exist, but are now a, a good judge or what have you, because they can identify all of that, that wrongness would be too cynical because they would expect everyone to be out there trying to rip off the system and all that sort of thing. So wouldn't actually be able to recognize a good man because they've never been a good man. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think yeah. that's what they were saying. The difference was that a good person could still see the wrong and understand the good, whereas the, who's been wrong, who's become good, probably yeah. wouldn't recognize the good. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, so that, I think that's, that um, you cannot recognize a, uh, an honest man because he has no pattern of honesty in himself. Yeah, that's it. That, that's that's that, the way that's, they put it. I remember talking about that last time when our recording failed <laughs> and um, <laughs> pointing out that um, uh, Peterson, who I listen to a lot, basically talks about that there's three approaches to life that you've got um, naively optimistic or pessimistic or knowingly optimistic um, and that the third was the best choice because uh, if you're naively optimist um, you're going to get hit by a train if you're a pessimist you've been hit by the train but there's no joy in you or you can choose to be optimistic even though you know that at times that won't work well or that you'll get a bad result and that that's the yeah. most courageous way to be and set your attitude right. to gratitude yeah correct <laughs> So um, after all that, they basically wrap up. There's a couple of quotes that kind of summarize that sort of section up. So I'll just go through those quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, this is the sort of medicine and this is the sort of law which you will sanction in your state. They will minister to better natures, giving health both of soul and body. But those who are diseased in their bodies, they will leave to die. And the corrupt and incurable souls, they will put an end to themselves. And following on from that, they put an end to themselves. <laughs> Absolutely, just wow. finish the job. Thank you. Here's your own sword. <laughs> Mind that first step. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, and there's a couple more. Um, uh, and that's our youth having been educated only in that simple music, which, as we said, inspires temperance, will be reluctant to go to law, and the musician who keeping to the same track is content to practice the simple gymnastic will have nothing to do with medicine unless in some extreme case <laughs> so uh, you know really talking down on uh you know encouraging anyone to go to law and medicine there but uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway they sort of put a bow on that so that that sort of section uh gets wrapped up so to speak um, yeah, nice. they really move on now to kind of talk about the the balance that they should be seeking between um, gymnastic or the, the physical pursuits and uh, and the uh, arts, so uh, you know literature and music. Yeah, that was an interesting bit. Like the, he sort of roughly says, you know, if you're too interested in just the life of the mind, you become soft, and if you're just too interested in the life of the the body, so to speak, you you basically become kind of like a barbarian. I like. The terminology in my book is quite good. He says, for the person that's just interested in, you know, physical training and, and doesn't cultivate the mind, he says, and so he becomes unintelligent and an, an unintelligent philistine, and no use with no use for reasoned discussion, and an animal addicted to settling everything with brute force. His life is one of clumsy ignorance, unrelieved by grace or beauty. 
I'm like, that's, that's a beautiful. that's a really beautiful way to describe a jock. Yeah, oh, that, that's the thing. It's just jocks versus nerds, and it's uh, you <laughs> know Philistine. <laughs> well, I thought that was interesting because Philistine is a, is a, a um I, is Philistine in your translation? I because don't recall it. Yeah, because that doesn't oh, make sense for it to be in here in my mind, and like I, I'm a total amateur when it comes to history. But I mean, Philistine makes sense to anyone that's read the Bible, right? Like that—that's—that's that's a, a term that that makes sense. But I don't know whether Socrates had access to the Bible. I mean, maybe he did, um, but that doesn't mean he didn't know what Philistines were. But I'm wondering if it's more whoever's translated my version has used it, uh, used it so that people in our time can understand the term more so don't get too hung up on it guys it's 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 just a, a little side like because I'm, I'm a big fan i yeah. love the term philistine <laughs> I, I haven't i haven't noticed it in my translation i don't recall it being there yeah i wish i could find it but no i cannot <laughs> an animal addicted to settle everything by brute force mm. oh here we go uh and he ends becoming a hater of philosophy, uncivilized, never using the weapon of persuasion. He is like a wild beast, all violence and fierceness, and knows no other way, li- way of dealing. And he lives in all ignorance and evil conditions and has no sense of propriety and grace. So that, that's I think version. I like your versions better. Like I'm more and more finding the language is just a little bit more poetic than mine. Mine's a little bit more analytical. <laughs> Yeah, we're more flowery. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to read something old, you want it to be poetic, right? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Who knew the Mount Druid edition would be the poetic one? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, they're, maybe they're expecting the people like to, to read it out to a hip-hop tune or something. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, dude, that would be amazing. If we, could ever get, if we could ever get the funding, we'll do a hip-hop rendition like a stage musical hip-hop version of plato's republic that would be the most amazing thing oh. ever so great dude <laughs> we'd have to get like vanilla ice to play socrates when he's in his 60s <laughs> That'd be awesome. uh, gentlemen stop collaborate and listen <laughs> you did it. bang he you was a philosopher it. Didn't even know it. <laughs> but basically, after all that argument, anyway, these guys basically agree that they um, you need to strike the perfect balance between um, the the gymnastic and the artistic sort of side to have the best situation for the guardians to flourish. So they want them to have enough brawn to be able to beat them back, but uh, have the intelligence to to know when they should uh, talk and be. Uh, perhaps more delicate in their negotiations so uh, yeah that's that's more or less what they're sort of uh, finishing up with at the end there so uh, uh, there's a little quote uh, and he who mingles music with gymnastic in the fairest proportions and best attempts uh, sorry attempers them to the soul may be rightly called the true musician and harmonist in a far higher sense than the tuner of the strings there's that uh, flowery poetry for you, Bruce, just to finish it up. <laughs> yeah, my version. <laughs> is, that, is that the last like line of your translation for that bit? Uh, pretty close to, yeah. Yeah, because mine is, uh, we must therefore ensure, my dear Glaucon, as I said, 
that there is always someone like this in charge of education in our state it is if its constitution is to be preserved which mm -hmm. yeah nice big words bra but where's the poetry at <laughs> but I mean you do it kind of does give you sort of differing perspectives because when I've read the sort of the conclusion of that chapter I've written my own little summary which is essentially mm. the survival of the state requires the populace to have a certain character Socrates is convinced that this character can be achieved through education therefore education must be monitored by a certain a person with a certain character um, yep. I think that's kind of roughly where he's at I'd, yeah, I'd agree yep 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 we know we look we have a similar line uh, and such a presiding genius will always be required in our state if the government is to last is what we have see that still sounds nicer <laughs> <laughs> and really that's it for uh for gymnastics so uh i think uh maybe we'll park that one there because we get into some juicy juicy stuff as that uh book three sort of wraps up but we might save that one for uh for next week or later on yeah, this right week on. <laughs> yeah, yeah i agree well it is next week it's it's sunday <clears> that we film so we're still yeah, true, true. True. in that window just <laughs> all right um well let's uh take a stroll down through to the pub for lots of us uh as we insert a jingle here um which I still haven't made. Oh, listen to that. He's ready to go. Wow. It's the best I just need to put some so guitar far. over it. Um, loot. So, loot. Yes. So, no, no loot and no loot in this uh, society, right? I have a Benjolina. I what? don't know what that is. It's kind of like a banjo. Um, oh, I thought that was wife's... when uh, Brad and Angelina were together. Uh, is it Brangelina? Yeah. No. Because yeah, um, it, it's actually my wife's mum's, someone's relative had it, and I found it up in their roof, and I was like, oh, it's going to be destroyed up here. So I brought it down and um, cleaned it all up and put new strings on it. So I, I'll make something with that. It'll, it's probably like so. What is it like a ukulele version of a banjo? Kind of, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can put a photo of it up on the during post-production I, I think the uh, the task for you Tim is to look up the sheet music for the intro to Assassin's Creed Odyssey and to be able to play that on your uh, Branjo Lena whatever it's called I don't need yeah, to look it working, up like, I know it off by heart I'll be Sunday. able to just remember it <laughs> I'll be able to remember it it's Sunday fine. to master that <laughs> nice alright so the, the pop the, uh, topic the topic for the pub philosophers this week is I wanted to discuss a video by a YouTube channel called Academy of, Ide Academy of Ideas. Uh, it's a 10 minute video and it is titled, Why an Obsession with Safety Creates Sick Minds in a Sick Society. Discuss, no. So <laughs> um, I, I watched this video and was like, wow, this is really nailing some important things for me. Um, I, I used to do safety as my career, um, did it for nine years and learned heaps of good things through it. Um, but this video addresses some of my experiences in that, but it also addresses 
um, at a more personal level um, issues because I've had issues before with anxiety and I had to you know learn some strategies on how to deal with that and the strategies of dealing with anxiety and anxiety attacks are counter to the advice that you would probably get from trying to be safe um, which tends to be go and expose yourself to it um, and uh, you know Jordan Peterson talks about you've got to go slay that dragon you know, go slay the dragon in the cave before it comes and burns down your, your uh, village so you know I, I was just like this is a really really good video because it's it's um, addressing those things that for me personally been going on and it's also a good commentary I think on uh, where culture in the West is at this particular point in time um, where we're more concerned about safety than we are about freedom so yeah, that's why I wanted to discuss yeah, it a little bit. So I'll, I'll, I'll pass the microphone over and, and see what you guys think. Well, for, cl for clarification, like uh, the technical the, the technical term that the, that particular video uses is that they put it's put safety as a higher order value um, than ordinarily or would be. And I think that's a good way to think about it. It's basically, if you're thinking about what is most important, it, that video is basically saying if you put safety above other things in terms of importance it's going to have some some consequences yeah that's a good way to describe it it's certainly mm. not anti-safety but it's saying you know no it just shouldn't be the number one goal. priority for society yeah yeah so yeah look here's, here's here's an example that i know we've discussed before lachlan um i love riding motorbikes i have a motorbike mm. my my concern is our culture's attitude towards safety is at some point in the future it, I will not be allowed to ride my motorbike anymore <clears> because <throat> the government will say that is too unsafe and for your safety we're going to stop you from being able to do that one day that might be 200 years away I don't know when that is but on the current trajectory I think that will happen at some stage or something else like yeah we've like both if we get really to a point cars you can't use them anymore because they're too unsafe yeah, if we get to a point totally. where computerized everything's automated and cars are computerized and brand new cars are super safe and all that sort of stuff, it, you're right. It's, it could get to the point um, where they're sort of like, well, why are those lists, those risks are just unacceptable now because we have this system that's essentially foolproof. Is that sort of what you yeah. mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think we were talking about it. Just you know, if you make safety that a higher order it takes away choice and you know as a society you want to have that choice for yourself around what's acceptable for you um and i like to talk about the cars you know like you know <clears throat> my car's got no abs no airbags um don't think it's even got a collapsible steering column so if I have an accident, that chances are it's going to be a, a pretty serious one. And I know, like Tim, we were talking about the motorbikes, you know, and what the stats are. You very specifically knew exactly yeah. what the stats are for coming off a motorbike. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say them now off the top of my head. Last time I checked, it was three and a half times more likely to die if you have an accident on a motorcycle than in a car. And 27, 28 times more likely to have a lifelong disability. Mm. So it's significantly but, more higher risk. Yeah, but you wouldn't trade the feeling you get from riding a motorcycle to be more safe, would you? 
hundred percent. I feel mm. more alive on that bike than just about anywhere else in the world. It's the best feeling. Yeah, it, it's it does sort of like uh, you, you know I hate to keep drawing parallels about cars because you know obviously that's a passion area, but um, <laughs> you know it's almost like uh, you know every time they bring out a new safety feature for a car. I think, well, there we go. The drivers are going to get dumber again because it's like, you know, people used to know how to brake in their cars and now you have ABS brakes and people don't know how to, you know, how to brake in a car that wouldn't have ABS brakes. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have ABS brakes. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And it's, you know, we're talking about things like uh, automated cruise control and, and all of these things. And I always think, you know, people by nature are, are lazy. And I think sometimes it's easy for decisions and risk to be taken away from people in the name of safety. Um, and look, I, I don't know, like I must admit, I read a couple of comments that were on this video and um, there's some um, guy in uh, Afghanistan or something like that who said, I've lived in a totalitarian, under a totalitarian government and um strangely people feel safe under that because the decisions are taken away from them sometimes and he said you know you've got to be careful because it's very easy to fall into that trap where decisions are now being made for you in the scheme of a you know a higher power we're looking after you we're taking that decision away from you to protect you that's yeah yeah, um, i think that's a really really important thing for people to keep in mind and even that video itself um kind of about halfway through just sort of hits you with um yeah 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 and if you know you you value safety too high it can have this impact and it's like and it leads to totalitarianism (laughs) yeah um uh and i think it's true yeah yeah like i it certainly can and i think it's um just one of those things that um you know like no one's saying that you should make things unsafe just for the fun of it. Um, but I think the video made some really good points that there's been some really amazing things that have happened in human history because people accepted risk and yep. didn't choose the safe option. And if we as a society always take the safe option, how are you going to progress? I know like there's something I was <clears throat> keen to talk about uh, on Sunday that I forgot <laughs> forgot about, but it was like, uh, you know, listening to Elon Musk talking about, you know, going on a, uh, a mission to Mars and saying yeah. people are probably going to die as we try and do this. This is really risky, but we need to do this. And it won't and, be for like his ships are getting designed to take between one to three hundred people at a time. Mm. Like that's going to be a massive test for that project. If they, let's say, the first four flights are successful and you get four to eight hundred people on Mars, and then the fifth flight yep. blows up, what do they do? Do they stop the mission and leave the eight hundred there to sort it out, <laughs> or do no. they continue? You know, like it's a big call. Um, mm. And, you know, I hope that they have the balls to see it through, but I'm concerned that they'll get blocked at some point by, by some government saying, no, nah, the risk is too high. Yeah, and, and look, and 
from a government's perspective, some of that's going to be political risk, right? Not not actual risk. Mm. Um, and I think that's um, a big problem. Mm. I think that's a really big problem because I think a lot of decisions are made, even particularly in our society in current days here in Australia, a lot of decisions are made on the basis of political risk and not actual risk. Oh, for sure. And I, I just think I actually I actually think that's dangerous. Without going into too much detail, I think that's downright dangerous. Yeah. Mm. So I, I yeah. with my background, I think there's two approaches to safety. And I think there's zero harm and there's reasonable risk. And so one example I'll give is skydiving. So a zero harm approach to I want to be allowed to jump out of an aeroplane. A zero harm approach would be okay you can do that but the airplane is one foot off the ground because if it goes wrong <laughs> you, you you won't die so no one can die if we let's even do it one meter off the ground no one will die so that's an acceptable zero harm risk mm. well stuff that i'm not skydiving um but e- equally i don't want to go skydiving in some volkswagen beetle powered monoplane that some bloke built in his backyard with a parachute made out of old tablecloths. Like I want there to be standards around flying, licensing, good parachutes, all those things. But at the end of the day, if that risk of you jump out of a plane, everything goes wrong, you die, exists. Well, as long as that's a one in 400,000 event instead of a one in three event, well then play on, you know? And that's, that's my risk. concern is yes but that's my concern is people go well but, but what, what if it's one person that you know that dies well you know you've caused that person to die no I haven't gravity calls that person to die and they were, they were choosing to do their passion and live the life they wanted to so you know that's, that's one example and I'll just quickly say the other example was um, a person that previously trained me used to do risk assessments for Um, paratroopers and an acceptable risk for a mission behind enemy lines was a 30% fatality rate so below that was acceptable above that was unacceptable and to me that was like a really significant example of risk management versus zero zero harm Um, and and so you know I I think um, if, if you've got a zero harm mentality as a society that's this type of safety sickness that this video is talking about where it prevents you from living and it prevents you from doing anything Um, but risk management done well I think actually emboldens you to take those chances and to do those things because you know that you've given yourself the best chance possible to succeed without killing yourself and killing everyone else (laughs) and so I think that's why it's that's what I think that's what the video is trying to get to is that sort of distinction and that we've lost sight of that distinction as a society yeah, what was the uh, Seneca quote again Tim because um, I thought that was relevant uh, the um, well there's yeah so Seneca's one I think was um, uh, just well I'll paraphrase I can't quote it verbatim it's essentially just because a man has grey hairs and wrinkles does not mean he has lived long he has merely existed long I think you're pretty close there but yeah yeah it's that difference between you know what is it to live versus exist and um yeah you know you can um be captain safety and uh and not experience anything in your life or uh 
you know, God, I know I've done some ris- some risky stuff, and I wouldn't take any of them back. Um, yeah, it's some really risky skiing in New Zealand when I was sort of twenty one or something like that, up on some you know like black diamond trails and stuff like that, where I, mm. you know, um, was, there was a, a high chance, I suppose, you know, you you could have you know, come a cropper. But uh, it was spectacular and beautiful, and I'd I'd do it again, you know. Hundred percent. Mm. Um. Yeah. What do you, What do you you got anything to add to that, Ruben? No, not really. Um. I just um. Yeah. Look, I think. Um. Personal. I, I I think one of you mentioned just just now that um you could have that perfect safety or not perfect. You'd have that higher level of safety, but it's going to infringe on um, your freedom, on your personal mm. choice. And I think it's just to a large effect, that's what it comes down to. It's a trade-off between um, freedom and freedom and safety. Yeah. Um, and look, and as you were pointing out, Tim, there's got to be a balance. Um, but if you place safety as the highest order principle, um, you're going to run into trouble. Um, yeah. And look, perhaps, perhaps if you place freedom as the highest order um, principle, then you're probably also going to run into freedom. Um, but it's very easy for um, those two things to get out of whack. Me personally, yeah. I'm more for freedom over safety um, and um, personal responsibility. Um, but that might just be the way I'm wired. I mean, other people, other people will take that freedom route every single time. Personal responsibilities have got a big part to play in there as well. And um, I think you have to have a society that recognizes it um, and doesn't, <laughs> uh, you know. They need that character that Socrates is talking about. Yeah, yeah. Was that virtue? Yeah, you know, like, like the ones that they're going to look after themselves, they're going to eat properly, and they're going to work hard. You know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're not going to need lawyers and doctors who've got that, that sense of personal responsibility. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you, you don't want to have that society that's uh, suing everyone for everything when it's just your own dumb fault that, you know, something <laughs> happened. Yeah. Because if you yeah. do, you're going to end up with a point. You are, you're going to end up at a point where they, the, the, the government is going to legislate for safety because they don't want everyone suing each other. Well, I mean, yeah. we were going that way for a while there. And uh, I don't know if you remember, there was, um, you know, God, it was probably in the sort of mid 2000s and everywhere you went, there's like safety signs everywhere, caution, you know, this, that, and the other, because they're worried that someone's going to trip, slip, fall, whatever, whatever. Um, fortunately, it seemed to wind back a little bit and the, the litigation in the courts started to sort of abate and some yeah. normality resumed, but we were going in the wrong direction for a while there. Yeah, <laughs> I think part of it was there was some research showing that people would become blind to signs because there'd been so mm. many of them, they just weren't paying attention to them anymore. Yep. Um, look, the other thing I'll say on this is one of my favourite stories is The Hobbit, followed by Lord of the Rings. And both of those make the same point around those from the Shire. Um, that if they're in the Shire, they're in this safe little world where there's no harm and no risk and they eat and drink and be merry. Um, but they're vulnerable and they just don't know they're vulnerable. And the difference between the book and the movies, spoiler alert, uh, is at the end, after they defeat uh, Sauron uh, and Frodo returns to the Shire, the the Shire's been taken over 
um, by Saruman and some orcs. And the yeah, the, that's really interesting. That part um, it is, and they have and to not raise only is, the Shire up and fight them out. But not yeah. only is it that it's taken over by orcs and that, but the orcs have the hobbits doing a lot of the work. Yeah. So they show up there, and there's all these hobbits who have just like jumped on that safety bandwagon, and they're just like ratting each other out and stuff. And that's that's like another battle that they've they've mm. kind of the, the mindset yeah. because, and I think that's what you kind of what you're saying, Tim. Like they they lived in this like cushioned, uh, decadent kind of lifestyle. So when it came to taking risk, they were just they they weren't willing to do it, and it it led to them just being tyrannized. Hmm. that's right and so when you and, and I think it was a real shame the movies didn't touch this because it touches on that bigger idea again that I've heard Peterson talk about which is a rabbit isn't virtuous um, and, and what he means by that is a rabbit is cute and nice and it doesn't hurt anything but that doesn't make it virtuous it just makes it a prey animal but if you yeah. have if you're a monster who can destroy and can fight and can do all these things but then you do not act monstrously. That makes you virtuous, and that yeah, well, is what C.S. Lewis and touches... Sam and all those guys be- become. You know. Well, yeah, that's right. C.S. Lewis kind of touches on that sort of stuff too, but from the inverse. Like he talks about courage, um, mm. and he's like, "It's not courage if there's no risk." Mm. Mm. Yes. You can't, you can't live a courageous like, and all those things that we call virtuous unless there's some risk. Um, then you don't get to exercise courage and they have no value. I'm probably, that's a really simplified version of it. I'm probably getting it wrong, but... No, but I mean, it's, it's you know, you know, people who are awarded the Victoria Cross for, for bravery in, in battle, they put themselves into a high-risk situation where they're, you know, probably going to die, but they're doing it for the greater good and the benefit of their fellow man. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, heroes are are born and you know what would be the world without heroes it takes one to stand up to tyranny sometimes if you don't have people who are willing to take that risk um you know you're setting yourself up for failure there so yeah yeah that's right Mm. yeah so you know i think that pretty much covers how i feel about that topic i think um thanks for talking it through with me guys so well it's not it wasn't as good as the first run at it but it was, it was <laughs> I'm picturing us in a uh, pay for the recording booth <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, a that was such a good clip of Jack Black that was, that was so good um, yeah I'm going to watch that after we get off you yeah I think that's a good idea so for those listening or watching I'll put the link to that um, Academy of Ideas video into the description for this episode um, they all like crack and check the out way. their channel yeah yeah I've been watching so many of those. It's just like distilled knowledge from the last hundred years, basically. It's a very good channel. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, excellent quotes, excellent logic applied to different subjects, um, and doesn't seem to be overly extreme in any political direction. It's quite neutral. Um, well, what I perceive to be as neutral. And every political compass thing I've ever done, I'm always just slightly right of centre. Um, even though a lot of people expect me to be further to the right, I end up always being less than one unit of measure from the centre. So, 
Um, <laughs> it can't be that bad. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, thanks uh, for joining us for round two tonight, uh, Ruben and Lachlan, and um, I'm very confident that it worked this time. And uh, for the listeners, thanks for your patience with this episode coming out a bit late. And uh, remember, the Republic wasn't built in a day, and neither were middle-aged men. So uh, have a good rest of the week, and we'll see you next week. It's been a pleasure, mate. Okay, I've just done that to sync. <laughs> <laughs>